turned 80. He was sitting out back in a rocker. He said, What you been Yeah, well, and the thing about this border is that it is quite literally at the top of a mountain. So as soon as you pass over the other side of the mountain, you are in Kentucky. And it is kind of a bit like, it, I don't know why, but I always liken it to kind of Mordor. Because you really are, like, you're looking down into, like, this region that is, like, ringed by these larger mountains. But the region itself is just kind of, like, strip mined and fucked up. And there's, like, trash fires ever. But like it's very beautiful. I, I shouldn't say that. Like it's like it's like if Soromon got his way. If he had if he had created yeah. that industrial civilization that Soromon wanted to create. If he had managed to chop down all the trees, all the oh. ants and whatever. And was that the subtext of that? I guess I never really thought about that before. There is. There, I don't know. Maybe I didn't when I was a kid when I read it. I'm not sure that I would have got it. But there's like you know that fantasy genre has a sort of like um, anti modern romanticism to it. And I think in watching the movies, because my girlfriend and I, Rex, and I watched uh, them all recently, there is a there is a form of like industrial critique of industrial society. It's not like Jensen or Zerzin, you know, I don't think that Tolkien was an end prim or anything like that. Right. But it's like the dark wheels of industrial progress versus like the mythic semi-feudal petty producing uh, hobbit folk you know so he was trying to proletarianize yes the countryside <laughs> well actually now yeah i mean certainly the hobbits would have been uh, would have suffered the ills of proletarianization but i think it's also too it's about uh it's about primitive accumulation and slavery because he's got the orcs uh-huh right remember yeah. he's like breeding all the orcs out of the primordial ooze so perhaps there's a lesson there about uh Primitive accumulation of capital, slavery, and uh-huh. uh, settler colonialism, and then eventually it comes for the for the feudal peasant, and, and proletarianization begins. What a hell of a way to start an episode! Well, as you no, know, it really is because now that you mention it, now that I t- so like I had mentioned to you while preparing for this that not not so much. I just so happened to be reading it at the time. It wasn't to do this episode, but I was reading. Ellen, is it Miskins Wood? I don't know how to say it. Miskins, yeah. I usually say Miskins Wood, yeah. Yeah, The Origin of Capitalism. And it's a... A longer view. A longer view. Yeah, that's the subtitle. The longer view. I don't really... That is great. Like, I've not quite understood. I'm almost finished with it. I've not really quite... If anything, her view is a little bit shorter than some of the ones that I've uh, seen. (laughs) It's a condensed longer view, maybe. <laughs> right. It's not about the size of the view. It's how you use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the motion in the view. Not, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you so you were reading that uh, irrespective of, uh, of podcasting here. But what do you think so far? You're almost done with it. It's really good. Um, so, like, I tried to articulate it to Tom on the show like a week and a half ago and I felt kind of dumb and um and it's only really hit me now that the reason why is like her writing style is very interesting she's got a very fun writing style she like will drop a few hints of what she's getting at and like say it very confidently and assertively and you're like oh yeah that makes total sense but like when you're trying to re-articulate it back to someone you're like it's it's almost like she's reverse engineering like all of these different views of why the origin of capitalism like what the origin of capitalism is and like she's also building it rhetorically from that same kind of method like a sort of reverse engineering so she puts like these like we'll just sort of drop like little clues for you here and there but like for example i was trying to explain to tom like her argument and i believe that it's sort of like in line with Brenner's, right? This is like political Marxism. Yeah, they're both political Marxists. Brenner is the one that invents politic, what becomes known as political Marxism. And then Woods is like kind of, uh, you know, popularizer slash uh, she worked with them a lot too. They were part right. of the same school. Yeah. 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 And that's certainly what this book is. It's very easy to, you know, understand. And she, she does a very good job of, yep, of making it accessible and readable. Um, but anyway, so for example, like part of her argument is that what transformed the mode of production into something entirely new with laws that were unprecedented, hadn't been seen before, used before, whatever, was this transformation in property relations in England. And 
Um, and like she, like I said, she says this kind of like confidently and and assertively towards the middle of the book. And I was like trying to explain it back to Tom, but I was like, well, why did the property relations change? And um, and she doesn't really dig into that until like sort of t- towards the end, like really dig into the meat of it. Um, because she starts talking about like the nation state and like the same social transformations that created the modern nation state also gave rise to agrarian capitalism in England. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a very complex argument. It's very fascinating. Basically, I guess it has to do with England being an incredibly centralized state that like was able to sort of cleave a disunity between like the political and economic sp- spheres in a way that like France never could. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was like um she she likes to use the distinction between uh economic power and what she calls extra economic power, yes. which is force. So so all previous to the rise of agricultural capital in 16th century England, which then of course like spreads into all over the globe, industrial capitalism whatever. Prior to that point, the only way to to gather power was extra economically, which is to say to capture land and uh capture people uh yeah. basically create a big money hoard and have a castle and use that to spend on weapons to be able to directly take the surplus from the people and it's of course this um this um a- allegedly non-violent process of economic domination and the logic of that that goes on to change the entire world ultimately. right but it's um Political Marxism is very much about uh, the logic of capital, right? The capital as process, which actually Giovanni Arrighi is also really, really good. Well, that's that's funny you say that. And I know we, we wanted to talk a little bit about that today, but it is funny you say that because, like I said, I just happened to be reading this when you reached out to me. And it is kind of interesting to put their arguments side by side. I mean, I don't know if... I know it's in the Rigi subtitle, like money and the origin of our times and everything, but he doesn't say like the origin of capitalism so much. It's like, so I'm getting ahead of myself. So in Woods's book, she kind of like lays out at the very beginning of the book, like the historiography on this and that like the prevailing view on it, like your sort of knee jerk view. I think that most of us would have myself included. If you were to like Vox pop me on the street on candid camera or something like what is the origin of capitalism? How did it get started? The kind of like sort of uh, predominant view is that there were already capitalists and capitalist practices, but they were held in place by the kind of like feudal structures of political economy. And so once those were removed from them, they they were then able to flourish. And that's when capital, like basically the argument is that it's something that's been with humanity for a really long time. Exactly. I, I think in, in that book or elsewhere, or even just other political Marxists, um, pillory this as the the commercialization theory or the, the commercialization theory. model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where, where essentially you have going back to like the dawn of time with cave people using tools. They, they're, they're basically using like elementary forms of capital. And anytime <laughs> you see barter or trade happening, you know, 10,000 years ago, you're already seeing this potential flourishing. That's uh-huh. only going to take, you know, 10,000 years in order to take its, its, its form, because the understanding is uh, as uh, of capitalism as uh, not even a distinct mode of production, but instead as a sim- simple like evolution and growth and grow over of market practices, essentially, right? Right, right. Um, and so, and so ultimately, so, so capitalism is always just waiting in the wings. Once human beings, homo economicus, right? What once human beings arise as a force, as a species, basically, we're already capitalists. We're already, we already have that, this possibility. And it's only with the overthrow of tyranny, the tyranny of aristocracy or feudalism or whatever the case may be, or of guilds, right? Of, of merchant yeah. guilds and mercantilism that finally the true human nature the true human nature of society can finally build forth. And so it it might sound silly to listeners of say the Trillbillies or the Antifada, but, but that, that view is the dominant one. Right. What the Brenners and and Woods of the world and indeed, you know, Marx himself and Marxists argue is that it wasn't simply a quantitative shift. It wasn't simply markets getting bigger markets, getting freer uh, that, 
accounts for the rise of capitalism and is instead a fundamental shift in the social relations of production, right. property relations, as you said, and everything that 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 that, that flows from that. Yeah, it's so basically. I guess her argument is is that this drive for sort of um, extraction by extra extra or accumulation by extra economic means, like yeah, it means that like there could be trade, but there wasn't competitive production, and in, in the sense that like um, people may have traded competitively, but they weren't innovating the means of production competitively and um you know also trying to make workers work more intensely within a certain amount of time and other stuff like that and so uh and yeah it's interesting i don't know we're, we're, so then you're you do you want to it sounded like you were going to juxtapose that to the yeah you know, the giovanni arrighi histories so i think it's an interesting one and we just actually on on twitch.com slash the antifada paul and i just watched like a little short primer youtube video that somebody had made about the book because i was trying really? to kinda, Hell know, yeah. get it in my head i could maybe even put it in the in the show notes or whatever that's nice I, it's awesome yeah it's like i don't know he's probably some high school kid respect yeah. or college kid probably right. respect to you whoever you are out there who made that um spread the <laughs> or get everybody a rigi pilled it's a good thing. That's partially what we try to do too. Cause, cause so there is a distinction there about the rise of capitalism and uh, Giovanni Arrighi. Let me actually postscript this just a second before I talk about the difference between maybe Arrighi and like a strict Marxist historical materialist account. Hi folks. This is Sean here. I'm here of course with Terrence Ray from Trillbilly's worker, Trillbilly workers party. Uh, we're here. Um, God, what, two years after we originally talked to Rigi in a blockbuster episode that not only got us a lot of positive uh, comments that we both felt really good about, but also managed to sell out used yes. copies of Giovanni Rigi's The Long 20, 20th Century for months afterwards. People right. were not able to get a copy. That's Pro probably they probably weren't seeing as big of, um, you know, a mob rush through their front door until... Remember Ted Cruz held up that end of policing book, Alexi Vitali. It's like, it's uh, us and Ted Cruz are keeping the lights on over there. Damn straight we are, man. <laughs> we are basically, we all work for Verso books. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, we're, we're back here. And I think we want to talk a little bit about um, some reflections in the last couple of years since then, because we discussed about the book, not as a dry piece of history or as theory or whatever, but as describing a process that we're all living through. Um, we, um, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. And then I think also too, you said you're reading the woods and you're reading Malm. So we yes. can talk a little bit about fossil capital, which I yep. talked about with Derek Varn last month. And then too, we, 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 we can't have you back apparently without getting JD Vance updates. You're like yep. the JD Vance whisperer somehow. <laughs> That's like kind of fucked up of us. So it's just be like, ah, that JD Vance guy. Right. Well, it's funny. Like when we first started, we would get hit up a lot for that. And then there was kind of like a lull and then the movie came out. Um, but it's like, for years, I was like, oh, God, I hate to be known as the J.D. Vance guy or whatever. But now it's like he actually is becoming a prominent player in American politics. Like he's just topped the poll like polling in, in Ohio for the Senate race. He's act he's actually winning now. So it is possible he could be the next senator from Ohio. I mean, wow. <laughs> then then, so then you just got in on the ground floor. man. That's great. <laughs> You can be having think pieces in New York yeah. magazine or something in a year. Like yeah. I knew JD Vance's work when he was, but a wee <laughs> Yale graduate turned investment banker turned, I don't know, cringe bookshelf. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Um, well, we're, we'll, we'll touch on that. Maybe, maybe we'll end up doing most of that in, in a, in a bonus. Cause I think we're going to probably head cool. behind the paywall at some point, but back to what we were talking about. Cause I think it's really, really interesting. So there's like the, political Marxist, uh, Brennerite, uh, Ellen Woodsite um, uh, thesis about uh, the Brenner thesis about uh, the rise of capital as this, as you were describing as this shift in social relations happening, not in the industrial sphere or in the banking sphere for that matter, but instead in the agri- In the agriculture sphere as that, in the, in this sort of larger 
societal condition where people were becoming more and more dependent on the market for their basic needs of subsistence. Um, I think that... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, I just think that um, she puts a lot of emphasis on that. Just, you know, emphasizing that, like, yes, there was trade in agricultural products before this time, but after this time, there was never a point in human history where people were solely dependent on the market for their, you know, needs of subsistence. Right, exactly. Because obviously capitalism is ultimately uh, uh, the, the separation of almost all of us from the means of subsistence, from the means of production itself. Right. And so you, so you talk about that story in terms of um, these sort of acids at work within the feudal social order, uh, within the feudal class system, as it existed through the 15th, 16th, 17th century in England, you talk about um, property um, becoming alienable uh, and tradable. Uh, and the ability right. of the desire and the ability for certain members of the aristocracy and later the merchant class to start seeing improvements upon the land as a way to actually accumulate as opposed to simply grabbing more and more land. She goes into like detail on the kind of ideology of improvement. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, very disgusting when you read it sort of laid out, but this was essentially how they justified the genociding of the indigenous people in the Americas. Like the land in their sort of construction, conception of this idea of improvement, if the land, and this, this started with John Locke. It's actually very interesting. Like, it didn't start with John Locke, but John Locke was the first to kind of introduce this idea of exchange value being created when you, you know, work on the land. So, if, for example, the indigenous people in the Americas aren't improving it, quote unquote, which is crazy because, like, we know now that they were, you know what I'm saying? But, like, massive irrigation and horticulture and, like, controlled burning. Right. All sorts of, like, ensuring that, quote unquote, wild crops were, you know, um, attainable at different times. It- yeah. Yeah, and you know that they had to have known this. And that's what's even crazier. That, that, that I mean, there's even an, an idea that the Little Ice Age was was partially caused by like the reforesting of North America because of the disruption of their sort of land use practices. Anyways, that like John Locke and these others said that like and if the land wasn't being improved or used upon for agricultural production in this agrarian capitalist sense, then it was waste. Very specific sense that it was wasted, right. that it was um What's the Latin term? Because they were all, of course, obsessed with the Greco-Roman uh, Western right. civ. I think it was terris nullius. Yeah, like, something like that. Empty land. Basically, it was the justification for for how you could um, take these people's means of subsistence, take that take their land from them. Because, as you said, the it was in Locke's uh, treatise on government. Right, he talked right. about uh, what makes anything property, especially what makes land property. And this is like the the British ruling class, the Ang- the cursed Anglo ruling class, this yeah. like incipient uh, dastardly world empire that's going to cause so much death and destruction and, and rapine and pillage. Right. This is them working out for themselves the, a sort of religious, but more especially a secular justification for this expropriation and for this spread. So mixing one, mixing one's labor with the land turns that land into private property, essentially. Exactly. And this is a, and this is a process that, that you're seeing worked out not only abroad when it comes to like the beginning of this settler colonial scheme in the 17th century, uh, 16th and 17th, but also of course being worked out uh, in England itself, right? And- as, as new, as new for social roles arise social relations arise yeah she actually kind of walks it back like talking about like of course like it was exported or whatever to north america and it started in southern england but the laboratory for it was ireland like that was where um the idea like and this is why uh, I mean, obviously, they were trying to ethnically cleanse Ireland in a sense, and we're trying, you know, had the Ulster plantation, and we're trying to resettle it with Scots and Englishmen. Um, but like, that's where they applied these ideas originally. Um, 
Yeah, it's it is it's it's fucking crazy. I mean, it's just like it, it's incredible stuff. And it you know it goes back to capital. With Mark's talking about primitive accumulation. It's it's so so people can sit there and be like, oh well, so John Locke invented you know this conception of private property, and then they impose that you know, on the peoples of Ireland and, and the new world or whatever, like, no, this is a, a historical process that's beginning at this time that the intellectuals of that particular moment were trying to figure out for themselves, trying to figure out how to justify how to justify post facto yes. what is already essentially happening. Yeah. So, so, so you have, um, you know, this, this, this historical process. There's also, I think she talks, is, is that, is it in that book or is it in her empire of capital where she talks about how Sir Francis Bacon also uh, was like partial owner of a plantation as well and was working out the scientific method alongside working methods of like labor discipline on his indentured servants and shit. It's fascinating. It's not in this one. She does make several references to like, you know, Bacon and his various disciples and, you know, but no, that is fascinating. Uh, this is the enlightenment, right? Like right. this is this is your enlightenment, folks. This is the um, this is the these are in some senses the waters that we still swim in today. And right. this is actually to tie it up to what we'll be talking about later when we talk about uh, national conservatism and the dark enlightenment and all that stuff. There's now a pretty concerted anti-enlightenment reaction happening in the United States, uh, not to the left. <laughs> right course, but to the right um i think maybe marxists will be the last one to stand for the enlightenment i don't know uh, <laughs> uh no certainly the the vital center the rules-based international order is still trying to do universalism but uh-huh. uh, so I, i'm not sure if you were finished with i think the very interesting discussion about the the rise of capitalism in the countryside of england um but to juxtapose that to Origi's account of things, which we laid out, you know, in the last episode. So right. if anyone's confused, May 2020. Yeah, scroll back on your May, was it really May 2020? May 2020. Wow. <laughs> Damn, and it's almost May 2022. How time flies when you're fucking when you're in a fucking lockdown, man. Yeah. Um we made it though, at least so far. Uh-huh. Um yeah, so so Origi tackles things differently. In in fact, Origi is as good, uh, I think, historical materialist uh, and uh, and critique of political cr- critic of political economy as anybody else. But the way he arrives at his sort of um, logical system for understanding the kind of deep structure of world history, uh, there's marks in there for sure. Because as we talked about, all of these systemic cycles of accumulation, this uh, these laws of motion of capital accumulation. Uh, they go through processes of M to C, so money into commodities with the building of industry. And then eventually after a certain crisis, the hegemonic power shifts into a C to M you know, phase. This is all very Marxist, but he's, I think it's much indebted uh, to uh, Fernand uh, Brudel. Brudel, uh, yeah. Brudel of the, uh, of the Annal schools. Of, um, of France, who were also, they were economic historians, essentially, uh, but very much Smithian ones, looking at uh, the world in terms of that commercialization theory, essentially, talking about uh, basically a world system that existed and expanded, talking about markets, but also talking about anti-markets, talking about you know regional exchange zones, not so much talking about social relations per se, but right. doing kind of grant deep granular analysis of the way that people interchanged uh, products and goods and, and all that stuff and the growth of all that stuff. So Giovanni Arrighi, then you could say, well, so he's like he's an eclectic, he's he's idiosyncratic. Uh, I'm a Marxist. I can't listen to that stuff. Well, that should never be a good reason. But even if you believe that, I think maybe one way to square the circle, and I think it's a good one, is to kind of look at this at different levels of analysis, right? So uh-huh. you get by the time you get to a Rigi, you're doing something that um, you know Marx never had the time to do. Certainly, he'd never finished his volume on the state, right? But it's trying right. to take the logic of capital seriously and look at the highest level, the grandest sweep of history uh, and look at the rise and fall of not just capitalist powers, but territorial powers as well. Because right. this book is very much about the sort of dialectic between 
economic, as we said before, and extra economic power, right? Because the power of capital he talks about, but also that's always implicated, of course, with the territorial extra economic power of the nation state itself. So so perhaps we could say then that they complement each other. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. So I'm not... You know, I need to lay my cards on the table and say, and I, and I said this to you when you were reaching out, like, I'm not very well read in a lot of this stuff. I'm pretty new to a lot of this stuff still. Um, I have a really bad habit, uh, vice or addiction to fiction. So I mostly read fiction, but then I will go, <laughs> I will go like, <laughs> I mean, I, that's what I mostly read, <clears throat> but I'll go like three or four months where I just intensely read political economy and other things. But so I'm not very um, well versed in a lot of this stuff. Um, But it seems to me, having read the Origi and now having read this, that it just it's just a difference of kind of what's under the microscope, in a way. Um, Like, I think, as you said earlier, like the smallest unit of division in the Origi is probably like the nation state, like it doesn't go any smaller than that. Whereas with Woods, like she is looking, yes, at the granular granular level. We're talking about, you know, social and property relations in a small part of Southern England. (laughs) Right, right. um, Very specific block in time of like immense social change. Uh, And then, of course, like you you get to the grand sweep of it because we all know what the grand sweep of uh, of her history is. We're living in it right now. Right. You know. The second great globalization process of capitalism. Right. Or towards the end of it anyway. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, and it's, I don't think the two are incompatible, the two books, because maybe you could say that the process she's and Brenner, the process that they're kind of outlining, uh, could have slotted into maybe these larger structural or macro forces that were shifting at the time that Origi kind of talks about i mean in that maybe again in a dialectic what the interaction between those larger struck you know macro forces and these sort of smaller ones uh created a new mode of production i guess I, they're not necessarily i don't think they're mutually exclusive i guess is what i'm saying yeah no i don't think so either and i think both of them are on the right track at least in terms of like the reading that i've done how i understand the world it's like once you unleash this extremely powerful um, process of accumulation, um, it it has a it snowballs in on itself, and it and it continues to the point where it becomes by the 19th century like an unstoppable force. And then within that too, like the forces of capital um, it has certain internal uh, a certain internal developmental logic, right. right? That that once it starts playing itself out through history, and I'm talking about it. Um, as like this alienated force, because it kind of is, right? It compels all of our social actions and our activities. It's this sort of opportunity, but also constraint that all of us live, you know, whether we're, whether we own capital or whether we more likely don't own any at all and have to go out and work for a living, right? It is this sort of, um, it's the water in which we swim. It's so naturalized at this point that we can't even see it. But I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like the, maybe one way you square it historically is understanding the political Marxist theory of Brenner and Woods as understanding this transition and this starting point for this process that then unfolds over three, 400 years or so Um, that necessarily, because you know, capital becomes obviously the most important way of producing and reproducing people, that relationship, but it's not the only thing. We have to grapple with state power, obviously. And we've seen what happens when you don't grapple with state power. Right. Um, we're probably probably seeing now what happens when you don't grapple with um, with the geopolitics of these things. But we we said towards the end of it, or and certainly Arigi points towards this, that um, the great fourth systemic cycle of accumulation appears to have uh, reached a, a certain terminal point, right? Right. Arigi says towards the end of this book, and again, just real quick, he, he talks about these four different cycles of accumulation that arise where on a grander and grander scale and on a shorter and shorter time frame, right. going all the way from jo- Genoa uh, to the United Providence, Provinces of Netherlands uh, to the UK, and then finally to the United States, you have these sort of amalgams of, of state and private power um, of government and capital 
that managed to pull uh, large swaths of the globe and eventually the entire world uh, into their orbit, into a hegemonic uh, capitalist power. Uh, of course, in between those, because Great Britain and the United States were the last two, in between those, you have eras of uh, extreme turbulence. Mm-hmm. And as he shows in his book, you see that the that the, the the era of turbulence is coming when one of these hegemonic powers begins to break down. The way you see that happen is through what he calls a signal crisis, which is um, you know as the forces of production develop, as the contradictions adhere, as as things start to reach their maturation, I guess you could say within say Great Britain. You have um, a sort of internal movement away from industrializing, uh, from industrial capital towards financial capital, and the sort of inflows of capital that went before turn into an outflow of capital. Um, And then, you know, he says basically in the United States in the 1970s, you had what could be seen as a signal crisis, which signaled a move towards industrialism, towards finance, which we did see. And then he died, I think, maybe he died like right as it was happening, but it's presumed then that 2008, 13 years ago now at this point, which is still a crisis that we're very much living through, uh, was then the terminal crisis of American hegemonic power. So as Terrence and I sit here right now, having said all this, having at least like repeated all this stuff a couple of years ago, maybe we sit down now and we say like, wow, was, was Arigi actually right? Did we read the right book at the right time? Should we all be putting statues of Giovanni Arrighi up around, uh, I don't know, New York and Kiev or whatever? I don't know. Cosmic greetings, everybody. Antifada producer Andy here with a special tour announcement. I will be traveling the country to celebrate the two-year anniversary of my book, I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, a.k.a. The Green Book, available from Pluto Books. In conjunction with my essay, Mass Politics and the Spirit of May 28th, available at sm28.org. So this is a tour where half the dates will be at bookstores talking about the Green Book, and the other half will be at Radical Spaces. And I'm hoping to meet a lot of Antifada listeners and introduce them to some of the local projects that I really believe in and care about around the country. So listen closely, because here's the dates. New Orleans, May 5th at Metalworks. Tucson, Arizona. May 9th at BCC, the Blackledge Community Collective. Stories Books in Echo Park, Los Angeles, May 11th, with friend of the show Anna Merlan. Tamarack Bar and Restaurant, Saturday, May 14th in Oakland, California. The SJAC Community Center in Portland, Oregon, Monday, May 16th. Third Place Books in Seattle, that's the Ravenna location, on May 20th. I think I'll be talking with uh, Phil from Red May. May 23rd, we'll be at the Landing Strip Community Garden in Minneapolis. Hopefully the weather will be nice. And finally, Pills and Community Books in Chicago on May 27th with Jared Shanahan. I'm going to post all those details on my Twitter, and I'll probably post an update throughout the month if any of the dates change. But hope you can make it out to some of those dates. It does seem, and maybe this is part of, like, the world systems. I mean, it does seem like, so obviously, if you look back at what has happened in America in the last two years, we are living in a society that is coming apart at the seams. Like, yeah, every everything, this, this even goes to, you know, what we were going to talk about later. It even goes to that... Um, in the sense that, like, even the right wingers ne- op- also basically kind of operate on the assumption at this point that we are in a sort of state of crisis. That, like, the road we were on, and I know everybody talked about this back in when, tr- when Trump got elected, like, this is a moment of crisis, blah, blah, blah. But it, it really is. And it's like, it's, it's so much deeper than anyone could realize, I feel like. Um, and I think COVID exposed it, but now it feels like geopolitically the things that are happening it it definitely feels like not only did COVID expose our weakness our ability to sort of accumulate at the global scale that we used to um it seems like recent developments especially (laughs) with regards to Russia and Ukraine kind of prove that 
yeah, we, we have lost that role as sort of like global hegemon. And I, maybe that is premature, and we probably even said that two years ago. But it, at the same time, if that was true, I don't think you have a world in which Putin invades Ukraine. I just It just seems so crazy to me. Everybody knew it was crazy, but it also is like, I don't know how else you explain uh, it. I mean, if you're, if you're me, uh, two and a half months ago, you're sitting there looking at your screen um, and you're saying all this, all this U.S. propaganda, all this talking about Putin's going to invade, that sounds nuts. There's no way you'd be crazy enough to do that. This is all an op or whatever. Um, certainly, you know, I and many, many, many other people were proven wrong there. I was also even proven wrong to think that the Ukrainians could put up a stiff resistance, which they managed, uh, they have managed to do, but um, which I think goes to show we should be very humble about, you know, what happens next, because certainly you and me, and I think we're about the same age, we grew up in a world, in this world of like unprecedented American dominance between say 1991 and I'd go, so I go to 2008. Yeah, Uh, in in terms of like the unipolar world order, something like this uh, was unimaginable, which is maybe why somebody like me, maybe like you uh, couldn't imagine it happening. I think the way to understand this in the rubric that Rigi presents, right, is that hegemony is based, um, it's not just based on raw power, either economic um, or military. Uh, although America certainly has a lot still of both of those. Um, It's built on a set of uh, institutions, a rule-based international order, if you will. So under the Dutch, you know, with the end of the Dutch and English wars, uh, or within them anyways, the Westphalian system of states arises. And this is the sort of stable hegemony that that bourgeois Netherlands is able to sort of impose upon the state system of Europe. Right. It was like, finally, this the Westphalian system of treaties basically created um, a an order above the sovereign, uh, above the kings, even above the um, whatever you, what were the the president of of the or the prime minister or whatever of any place. It was it was like disembodied and above all those states. Uh, Great Britain then, of course, um, also creates like a what's called um, free market imperialism in the book, right? So it creates right. this sort of sterling centric, semi mercantile, and then later on very. A free trade sort of market system, which it polices militarily around the globe, which it like lubricates all the trade and it pulls even its enemies, um, you know, after it defeats the French, pulls even the enemies necessarily into its orbit, you know? Um, well, the United States, of course, does the same thing. It's just called the, the Bretton, Bretton Woods Agreement, yeah. right? Uh, and it's called NATO. Um, and it's called the United Nations as well. Right. You know, that's what Giovanni Arrighi talks about trying to set like another sort of international order above the petty differences of capitalist states or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you point that out. Like when I first read it, I, I didn't focus on that aspect of his argument that much. Does that mean you know what I'm saying? Like maybe that sounds weird to hear, but because it was my first time reading a probably a book like that or something. I, I just didn't really see the importance of it. But now in light of everything that's going on, it's like, oh okay, now I understand what he was getting at there. Like this rules based international order. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think I'm the same way. I think when I read it I was fascinated by, you know, the the stuff where he calls uh the United States in the 19th and early 20th century, this black hole that's pulling in capital and labor from uh-huh. all over the world and creating, you know, through manifest destiny, the sort of synthesis of uh, economic and political and territorial and military power that would basically unleash itself upon the world. You know, the, the, the political economy of the thing. But you're right now. I mean, now the stuff about um, the actual nuts and bolts of hegemonic order. Um, seems really, really important as it seems to be. It's not in full and complete breakdown, but it could, because of course, NATO seems to have been strengthened by this. The EU, the ties between the EU and the United States seem very much to have been strengthened. But maybe I think where we think about this perhaps contradictory movement within that is that the, um, the seizing of um, of three hundred billion dollars of uh, Russian assets, 
you know, their central right. bank reserves, which were held abroad, um, using the rules-based international order to undermine, essentially, the rules-based international order by essentially um, stealing or, or, or like, uh, at least freezing um, half of another country that's, you know, you're not even at war with um, uh, central bank assets seems like a, a, like a kind of um, an internal or at least like an abrogation of what that system was meant to do. And therefore, like the use of that system, which had been used uh, for quote unquote peaceful terms, all of a sudden being used for for more aggressive war, warlike moves, which is maybe how things continue to break down, which as like, cause if you're the hegemonic power as the United States has been, you use the soft power, you use sanctions and this, that, the other thing, but you don't go nuclear, you know, right. that the nuclear option and they fucking did it, which really starts to set serious friend enemy distinctions within the world economy starts to, as we've seen, break people up um, in this world order between the, the friends and the foes, the, the, the friends of Putin and the friends of the United States. That's a very good point. I, I guess I hadn't thought about that um, because, yeah, it signals the it sends the signal to every other global power that the same could happen to you, that exactly. you don't actually have any kind of unilateral um, sovereignty. I you mean, can't save up since 2014 like Putin did for exactly this to try to avoid sanctions. He yeah. saved up 660 something billion dollars, <laughs> assuming that the, uh, that the that those assets would be sacrosanct in the eyes in the eyes of the rules based international order. And the rules based international order said absolutely not, and just snatched them right up. And of course, you know, they've survived that thus far. What, but this seems like the strains, like internal to this system kind of yeah. coming out now. This is what I don't understand, though. And this is what I guess I keep coming back to. Like, why? Why do they care so much? Like, why would they do that? Like, it's Ukraine. Am, am I missing something here? Like, <laughs> I, I, I can, we can only guess, right? Because honestly, there's like the commentary on this stuff has been pretty deranged and there's been what analysis there is from the mainstream media in the United States tends to be like a, um, a psychoanalytic analysis of Putin. Right. Like he's the mad king. Yeah. Yeah. Like his conspiracies and his grudges. Right. Like he's the mad king. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, and then it's just assumed wholeheartedly that, um, you know, this is, this is the struggle for freedom. This is everybody's fight in Ukraine. Which maybe it is, you know, there's. Well, well, I guess that's really the question. Like I can, I can understand why Putin did it. And if I'm just looking at it on its terms, I don't understand why the United States has to go in complete contradiction to, yeah, this internet, what basically what you were just saying in contradiction to this, like rules-based international order, why they have to like fight this that hard. Um, I think, I think this brings up maybe, and this is, I mean, our discussion of this is going to have to be schematic because neither totally. of us are like Mersheimer, like, you know, geopolitical <laughs> theorists. We're just a couple of guys. But, um, you know, I think it has, it, it must in some way come down to competition, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, Arigi writes another book while he's dying, actually. And I think he barely completes it by the time he dies of brain cancer in like 2009 called Adam Smith in Beijing which opens up the question of if there's this sort of historical process uh, of rising and falling hegemonic powers, what happens next? If it's true that we've been through the signal crisis and we're now living through the terminal crisis, where does this spirit of capitalism rise again? And of course, you know, his book is called Adam Smith in Beijing. Right. And it's about the very real movement of uh, capitalist dynamism uh, to the, to the, um, to Eastern, to East Asia. And so I think that that is like the ultimate threat, right? I think that if you've listened to everybody going back to Obama with his pivot to Asia, all the shit that Trump was pilloried for, for taking like a hard line stance on tariffs with China, everything coming from the Pentagon, everything involving um, Pacific and Asian American policy, points to the American ruling class being rightfully very scared, of course, of the rise of China. And so, you know, it's all well and good to be to, to have a, uh, a rules-based international order that's about fairness and justice and free markets and free people when um, the Chinese state 
uh, and Chinese economy isn't breathing down your neck. Right. But I feel a sense of almost desperation. Among, yeah, yeah. Not just like the American ruling class and the media class, but also just of like the, the vital liberal center. You know, that truly does believe that America is this potent force for good in the world and that the rules based international order uh, means justice, that um, the spread of free markets everywhere is really a tide that's going to lift all boats. I mean, I think that the economic turbulence that we've seen and certainly COVID, like you said, has been has really laid bare a lot of the problems and contradictions that exist within American politics and society. I think it's a it's a moment of desperation for the vital center right now. I feel like they rightfully are scared of of losing this entire thing, this entire imperial world that's been created under American auspices. I think they're really scared. And so I think this is part of the reason why the ruling class of Europe, too, has kind of uh, reacted so harshly and ran to the side of the United States as well, too, because again, this this liberal order, I think they feel it crumbling before them. And so this is a sort of last-ish last effort to try to create some sort of unity um, within this imperial apparatus uh, by pointing to the, a danger, a very real danger on the yeah. outside, which is geopolitical, which is the, the war. You're right. It is desperation. I mean, in my small town, in downtown of my small town, every light post... <laughs> currently has a flag hanging from it that is like it's got a line that goes horizontally across the flag so the bottom of the flag is united states mm. the bottom diagonal but the top diagonal is ukraine mm. <laughs> like wow. I, is that even i don't even know if that's legal i mean i know it's probably legal <laughs> <laughs> it's if like, they could if they could desecrate the flag by putting like a blue a blue uh, thin blue line through it yeah <clears throat> i guess they can do that but <clears throat> i get I what thought, you're saying yeah i just thought it was pretty crazy like i like this is in a small town in in appalachia yeah, in Kentucky. Like, could you imagine yeah. that happening 15 years ago? Like another crazy. country being on our flag? <laughs> like crazy, crazy. There, crazy. there, there, there has to be. It, it, it's a, it's such an extreme thing to see that it, that it has to be more than simply the moral revulsion of, I of think, war. I, you're right. I think that that was Putin's miscalculation. Honestly, I think Putin really did not see. And how could you? How could anybody see just how far? This just how far the madness goes in this country, just how insane <laughs> we truly are. Yeah. Just like that, we let people would become this animated. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, belittle anybody's struggle in Ukraine or anything like yeah. that, but I'm just saying that, like, all kinds of things happen around the world on a daily basis, and like, this is the cause that they choose to, you know, become. Look. But yeah, Look, I, I think you're exactly right. That's why we're we're accepting a hundred thousand refugees from Ukraine. Of all the disasters that's been befalling uh -huh. Central America and Africa and elsewhere, you know, it's not just the the fact that these people are white. I mean, that's a pretty decent part of it. I mean, that goes some way towards explaining why um, there's this sort of moral right. fervor around the thing. Totally. These are not not the brown people we're bombing in Afghanistan and literally like starving out right now as we stole their central bank assets too. Right. We right. did it in Afghanistan what? first. Are we doing like an around the world, like heat, like Michael Mann, like just fucking heist, just like this. Yeah. One, I got one last job and we'll get out of it. One last job and we'll get out of it, Johnny. Just like, is, is it so? I'm imagining it's like Donald Trump on his golf course and a helicopter flies in and they're like, Mr. Trump, we're going to we're going to need you for one last job. <laughs> it's going to go back to the White House and just start pillaging just large, large sections of the world. Just, you know, like if you want to be world hegemon, you could create like a nice set of institutions for accumulation and trade and all that. Or you just simply steal everybody's money. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's very clear that we're not playing by the rules we once put in place. Exactly. And it's, it's kind of like a hubristic, like drunk with power type scenario and we've all seen the movies and stories about what usually happens in that uh, yeah <laughs> we know how that ends typically. yeah yeah so i mean this this kind of started there was that same sort of desperation i feel like with um with a war on terror too there was remember how fervent the sort of um national unity was and it wasn't just because three thousand people got killed uh in the world trade center but people felt like 
America, the American ruling class, the planners, the blobs, the media people, certainly the politicians felt at least for a couple of years till Iraq goes south, that America finally had a purpose again. Exactly. That this American project had a purpose and that purpose, whether it was simply deposing a tyrant or whether it was spreading democracy and freedom through the Middle East or whatever, uh, put a little more gas in the tank, you know, for at least like the ideological and political props of the American empire. And I feel like this is like that, uh, but even more desperate in a way, because it's like, this wasn't even American soil that was attacked. You know, this isn't even, they, they aren't even part of NATO. It's it's just sort of like this, this knee jerk sort of um, pulling everybody together and saying, we're, we're all Ukrainians now. That seems like a, there is a certain desperation there, I think. I think you're not just the the ruling class. I think the like the average American, whatever the fuck that means. I think, like you said, people see the see crisis, people see breakdown all around them. And so for people who are invested, you know, this then becomes something to rally around that isn't like, damn, my rent just went up, you know, four hundred dollars in the last month or whatever. It becomes a sort of like something external in order to pin our hopes and fears down. Oh, yeah. No, I can't over exaggerate how insane the average american is right now i mean (laughs) just completely like just i mean because like i don't know just and i guess maybe this could be the sort of next part of this conversation but there's just been several things that have happened not to me personally but to people around me in the last couple months and also watching everything that's going on in with the conservatives right now from till to christopher rufo I mean, it is all, um, I don't know, man. It's just really hard for me to. It's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, a lot. It's, it's, it's a whole lot. Um, People are crazed, man. They're truly uh, out of it. It's, it's almost like, um, and maybe we should start thinking about maybe going towards a paywall because we're getting up to about the one right. hour mark. Let, so let's, let's put a pin in that and we can come back. We could talk about Auriga a little bit more if you want, and then we can come and talk about. Yeah. It. Yeah. Cause, cause uh, I think in the bonus, we'll take another, you know, 30, 40 minutes or yeah. whatever. We're going to talk about this Vogue article that came out. Uh, Pogue Van- is the author's name. It's Vanity about Fair, her. I think. Vanity Fair. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, Vogue. <laughs> in, <laughs> in Paris Vogue, this article. About, <laughs> that's like um, that's like Teen Vogue doing anarchism, I guess. Now Vogue is just like the, <laughs> the yeah. political magazine. But yes, in Vanity Fair, uh, and also another one about this like vaguely alt-right national conservative uh, film festival that happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to discuss the, the NatCon sort of uh, new right thing, but, but we'll put a pin in that and we'll talk for a few more minutes and then we'll go to the past the paywall for that cool. stuff. But yeah, what, what else about a while, while we're uh, on it? Well, par- part of what he outlines is that every sort of uh, power, every power that is sort of seeking a global hegemon status, even if they're not doing it consciously, like in their sort of accumulation phase, they have to figure out how to internalize or, or which, you know, costs to externalize. They have to either internalize a set of accumulation costs or externalize them. And if I, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that like in Genoa, they had they couldn't internalize their protection costs, and so they basically protection costs. Yeah, yeah. yeah they they offset those on to off to Spain, and Spain basically took care of them. Right, right. So, so yeah, this is important. So Spain becomes then like the territorial arm of mm-hmm. like the capital power that the mm-hmm. Genoese have, and then it's that. Um, what is it that the United Provinces are able to it's, internalize um, their their protecting protection costs? They, they're the able state? to internalize their protection costs, but they can't internalize their production costs. Mm. Um, and England, which we and this is probably where Woods and Brenner could fit in, agrarian capitalism as it took form in England, eventually it created the circumstances for industrial capitalism. Right. Mm. And we all know like the enclosure and the proletarianization of, of everybody. And so England was able to 
internalize its production costs once it rose to sort of global hegemon. But it couldn't internalize, and this is the part I can't really remember, my arguments for it are fuzzy. It couldn't internalize its transaction costs. Mm. The, the United States was a, able to internalize its transaction costs, but it still was never able to internalize its social reproduction and environmental costs. Right, because because what ends up, um, the way that it, it, it creates a virtuous circle of its protection costs is the way that it essentially uh, forges military Keynesianism exactly. after, the, after the Second uh, World War, basically using, um, you know, pump priming, uh, like direct subsidy to industrial capital, i.e. weapons manufacturers, in order to keep some level of industry and also as sort of a counter cyclical program. So when, a, exactly. you know, a recession comes, you, you spend a bunch more. Uh, yeah, but then, as you said, social reproduction costs come in. And, I, and there, I think he's talking about like the the historic. So I guess what I would say uh, to finish that is the protection costs are not only internalized, but they're also become part of the accumulation. Uh, exactly. Yeah, right. And, but then the social reproduction stuff is, of course, he's talking about the historical lack of a welfare state for the United States. And, you know, obviously what leads from that is the kind of like abject poverty you see here, unlike many other parts. Um, uh, European countries uh, have managed to, it seems, internalize those social reproduction costs uh, and basically make them part of the package, the wage package of living in one of their societies. Whereas America had, up until recently, a very dynamic industrial capitalist economy. It was never able to make healthcare uh, and health insurance anything more than like a rentier type economy. Right. <laughs> Yeah, like that's, you know, right. it's like this vulture that, that comes and like sucks off 20% of your fucking money all the time. And it's not for like productive, it's not productive of much, you know. Right. Yeah. And this is, and so he basically says that the next power would be able to internalize its social reproduction and environmental costs. Now, earlier we talked about, I mean, and obviously there's speculation that, oh, this could be China, but I mean, I don't know. It seems like China is pretty, um, they're not like, I don't think that they're destroying the environment any worse than any other, you know, international global superpower, no. capitalist power. Like it, but at the same time, I'm not sure that they've fully figured out how to accumulate without environmental costs as well. And it's the thing like reading Malm, I'm not even sure if that's possible. I mean, I don't, Yeah. it's, it's, um, like he, 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 you know, he lays out a very sort of sophisticated argument about how um, he creates like a uh, a value form theory of pollution. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like he, he, I got made fun of a little bit by posting his little chart about how like fossil capital uh, fits into the the circuit of capital and all that stuff because it's, it's it is as you said very elaborate and advanced and and elegant the way he puts it. But he does, I think, I'm, I'm convinced after reading Fossil Capital that he's right that um, um, fossil fuels and the pollution, uh, climate changing gases that they introduce are not incidental to accumulation, that in fact, the mobility and the social power that that gives capital is like inextricable from capital itself. Absolutely. Um, and, and so then you have to have we have to get as we kind of wrap things up in a minute uh, to the Doomer stuff. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe there is not. Maybe we don't have another systemic cycle of accumulation in us. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I, at this rate, despite the fact that China is doing amazing work with reforestry, and they are as Europeans are in the United States to a smaller extent. They also shut down greener Bitcoin. technologies. They yeah. shut down Bitcoin. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Which is great on a lot of levels. Yes. It, it helps with yeah. pollution and with cringe. Right. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but but is it enough? I mean, it, yeah. is is this like infernal machine, this demonic algorithm of um of capital able to survive without its its smoky brother? And do we have enough enough earth left? And does capital have enough juice left? And I, I mean that in like a sort of end stage capitalist, sort of like a Heinrich Grossmanite final collapse theory, sort of Marxism. Yeah. 
you know, does do is there a whole other systemic cycle of accumulation left? Could it could it even go to China? And and, and one, I guess one more question I'll throw out there in the air too, which is I think you nodded towards this too, is that it doesn't seem like China, the Chinese state, the 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 CPC really intends to make the renminbi a a world currency, and mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have designs on the sort of. Um, global reach, uh, hegemonic reach that, say, the United States or Great Britain had. So do they even want it? Can it even happen, right. except maybe by accident? If, if it could, did, does happen, I kind of feel like it might be by accident. If the United States really is in a Michael Mann heat speed run, uh, <laughs> we're going to burn ourselves out. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's speculation. It, of course. Yeah. But like the ultimately the Malum argument, I mean, it is Doomer, but but it's not essentially he just shows through a very you know sophisticated logic that eventually it will go- gobble up the whole globe. It has mm. to. Like that's that's part of what capital accumulation is. Um uh, you know, and I don't know. So that's that's the thing. And I don't even know if when Arigi wrote that book, I'm sure that I mean, he was writing the book in the 90s when like I feel like the totality of the climate disaster, it was something people talked about, but it was kind of yeah. like, oh, that's crazy. Well, global yeah. warming, the hole in the ozone. But now it's it, when we're sitting, it's very obvious that, um, yeah, we're it's not not looking great. <laughs> We're living, we're living through like the, we're probably at like the end of the beginning now of, of some shit. Um, you know, I don't know. I, um, I feel like there history offers us an off ramp, but I'm not sure we're looking to take it. Right. I mean, yeah. technologically the means exist right? Um, for us to, to strike down this infernal machine of capital accumulation. doesn't seem like uh, the ruling class is going to give up that power. Uh, anytime soon and it certainly looks like their politicians are going to try to um you know uh keep dilly-dallying as 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 things start to heat up so i don't know absolutely communism would do it it would do it if only people (laughs) just fucking goddamn listen to me and stop calling me a naysayer god damn it Uh, well, uh, that's as good a place as any, I guess we leave it with like a bunch of open questions, right? Which is, um, well, I mean, I think that like America is completely insane. And again, I've said that earlier, but I can't stress it enough. I live in small town America (laughs) and everybody's completely insane. Cloud Uh, cuckoo land. (laughs) Uh, and but there there is like various vanguard groups trying to either harness the insanity browbeat the insanity out of people uh lean into it uh whatever mm. you know it's and um a couple of those groups we're going to talk about behind the paywall if you want to go nice. check that out yeah. but um which Good transition is, there i like that yeah 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 but, but so yeah we're going to talk about them over there maybe it'll at least add some levity to that but like because i think there are interesting things to be said about like the current political scene in america um and because there doesn't really seem like a quote-unquote like unified left anymore there was an illusion of one a few years ago it definitely doesn't really seem like there's much of one now it doesn't mean that we can't still look out at the you know the sort of landscape and pick out some sort of broad patterns and uh individuals sure. working on it yeah and and so maybe i just thought of like a light way to end this before we transition out is that um that last moment of global turbulence uh in between the last two systemic cycles of accumulation took place between 1914 and 1945 not fun that, years. <laughs> yeah not fun years at all um, uh, very turbulent, very bloody years, but also kind of the high point of the historic workers movement and also of, uh, kind of revolutionary fervor, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, that's when you had the Bolshevik revolution, even in England itself, you had the, the great general strike of 1924. You had the rise of the sort of militancy that kind of changes the world and changes capital, um, changes society <clears throat> for the next 
God, 80 years or so. So new social forms are necessarily going to rise. And I'm not so much of a doomer that I've given up hope that like, <clears throat> we haven't heard the last from um, the American or indeed the, um, the global working class. No, you're, you're exactly right. I think that the, it, it certainly puts revolution back on the table because I mean, obviously you talk about the last systemic, you know, systemically turbulent period and you say that the one before that was like the napoleonic wars and like right. how many you know almost revolutions were there you know obviously 1790 and 1848 and etc you know what i'm saying like yeah, yeah. Right, there's a lot of years between 48 and the napoleon no no but 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 you're exactly right that it's a revolutionary <laughs> period and i i suppose too and i it's you know I, I don't remember this from the book but i'm sure it's in there you had all those series of rebellions and peasants wars and religious wars right. in the in the moment of turbulence before that so we're all just kind of riding the tiger now um and <laughs> true. you know maybe time's running out but you know maybe maybe there's still time to 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 grab our our heroes and speed run a different future maybe, <laughs> maybe a fairer and better one but make uh make a better movie that, anyway make a better fucking movie yeah <laughs> with that said thank you everybody if you want to listen to the rest of this conversation uh become a patron patreon.com slash the antifada it's cheap it's good there's so much bonus content we're now going to have i think probably a good spicy discussion about some real jerk offs yeah. political assholes but some yeah. interesting ones though go check it out i'm a patreon so you oh, want to be like me right <laughs> everybody wants to be like you man. all right thanks again but you can buy thank the good lord for it because he ain't making any more of it so buy dirt, find the one you can't live without. Get a ring, let your knee hit the ground. Do what you love, but call it work. And throw a little money in the plate at church. And send your prayers up and your roots down deep. Add a few limbs to your family tree. Watch their pencil marks in the grass in the yard all grow up. Cause the truth about it is, it all goes by real quick. You can't buy happiness. But you can buy dirt